Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship, located in Southeast Ontario. Unitarian Universalism is a progressive free faith grounded in the promises of community and inspired by how we hold our shared faith's principles and sources. For more information about Canadian Unitarianism, please go to our website, kuf.ca, and our national website, cuc.ca. and welcome to the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship. Whoever you are and wherever you come from, you are welcome here. Wherever you fall on the spectrums of gender, sexual orientation, ability, or finances, whether this is your home or you are still seeking one, you are welcome here. As Unitarian Universalists, we strive to welcome and respect diversity of all forms because our diversity strengthens our interdependent community. My name is Francis, and I'll be your service weaver this morning. Today we are continuing with our monthly theme of interdependence. Interdependence is when multiple parties rely on each other, help each other, and share a common goal, whether or not those parties are all humans or all persons. Interdependence and independence are not opposites. Rather, an interdependent group is strengthened by the independence of its members, and interdependence and independence always exist at the same time. Interdependence can be about giving and receiving, but it is also about being, about simply or not so simply existing in a context and existing in a world, whatever that world might be. Now Reverend Beckett will say our chalice lighting. Author Leslie Jameson writes, empathy isn't just something that happens to us. A meteor shower of synapses firing across the brain. It's also a choice we make to pay attention, to extend ourselves. I'm trying to figure out what y'all are looking at, so I'm going to turn it off. (laughs) Wait, why aren't they looking this way? (laughs) Empathy is a choice. It's a choice you make to pay attention, to extend ourselves. It's made of exertion, that doubtier cousin of impulse. Sometimes we care for another because we know we should or because it's asked for, but this doesn't make our caring hollow. The act of choosing simply means we've committed ourselves to a set of behaviors greater than the sum of our individual inclinations. This confession of effort chafes against the notion that empathy should always rise unbidden. That genuine means the same thing as unwilled. That intentionality is the enemy of love. But I believe intention... I believe in intention and I believe in work. I believe in waking up in the middle of the night and packing our bags and leaving our worse selves for our better ones. End quote. That was from author Leslie Jameson. This community... This community is a home where we can work together towards 
our best selves. The people of this fellowship have the capacity to talk to one another and help each other grow. Hard conversations are still hard, but they're worth it when we realize that they will make us stronger and take us further together. If we are to embrace intentional growing, to respond and take action as a community, then we will exert ourselves in our care for each other and our care for the larger culture around us. I'd like to invite our webmaster and the chair of the communications committee, David Armstrong, to come up and light the chalice for us today. So today our chalice is lit for good intentions, hard conversations, and growing together into action in the world as one body capable of speaking and singing very loudly when we feel it deeply. On that note, pun intended, please rise in body or in spirit and join your voices together in song as loudly as you are willing. Hymn number 360, Here We Have Gathered. Standing for the recitation of our covenant. It's in your order of service. We gather in the spirit of love with open minds, open hearts, and open hands. May we learn to dwell together in peace, seek the truth in love, and build bridges of understanding as we work together to create a more just and loving world. Please be seated. So that thing about when you get something that has no context, when I just stand there and sign at you without including you in what happens is a piece of our story that we want to share today. And it's important for you to know to start with that I have a deaf son when he was nine months old. He had spinal meningitis and almost died and became profoundly bilaterally deaf. So that was th almost 30 years ago. And I've it opened up a world for me of being part of deaf culture that completely and totally changed my life. And I was involved locally at the school as well as at the provincial level. And I was awarded, I remembered when I was preparing for today that the local deaf community, Belleville Association of the Deaf, when I lived there, because my son went to the deaf school, they gave me an award because I, in the end, I went with pro-deaf ASL culture rather than you have to make a lot of decisions in those early days about what path you're going to travel. So that was a choice that I made at the time that we made. So my son grew up in deaf culture using ASL as his sign. So today we're here to describe our dialogue about a simple thing which would be kids signing a song. I think, is this on? Yes. Everyone knows me as Kelly and no. I, pardon? It's not on. Can you hear me? Sure, is it on now? It's on. Turn the red thing. Turn it left, right? Am I on now? Oh yes, I am. All right. Um, so I think everyone knows who I am. I'm Kelly and I am the co-chair of the RE committee and I also do a lot of the coordination of curriculum for the kids in the program. And back in October, I wrote an email to a number of members uh, from KUF who had expressed interest in working with the kids through music 
because one of the activities in this packet we get every month from the Soul Matters people um, included a song called Light a Candle for Peace and it had signs that went along with it. So I reached out to those people I knew were interested in working with kids and I included Susan because at Unirondack this past year I saw her do a poem using signs and so I thought she might be someone uh, that we should bring in. And my ask was, do people want to work together with the children? Do you think we can do this song? And Susan, do you want to do the signs? So my intention was good. My execution of that ask wasn't super skillful. Um, so I waited to see how people would respond to the email. And while we talk about this very simple email, we're going to weave in some points from Annie Gonzalez-Milliken, who wrote a paper that was published on the UUA.org website called Five Spiritual Practices for White Fragility. But I like our title better. <laughs> in it, she just goes through five spiritual practices that Unitarians are familiar with already that they can use when someone gives you feedback that an action you're proposing wasn't um, particularly appropriate. So I heard back from many people and they were very interested in working with us and I didn't hear from Susan until three weeks later. So when I got the lovely email from Kelly, I was like, Arr! <laughs> right? That thing about let's just learn and let's just teach the kids a sign to the song. And so I sat with it for three weeks and I just, my heart was sore and I didn't know whether I should respond. I thought, just don't respond. And I went back and forth, back and forth. So I finally took the risk to email to Kelly and say, um, should, is this on the next slide? Uh, yes, it is. Can you go to the next slide? Thanks, Selena. So I responded with, um, I wanted to build an approach that was inclusive and grounded in principles of understanding of the deaf community and ASL as a culture and linguistic language. And I felt that singing a song or book in ASL is not culturally inclusive or sensitive to the complexities of the history of oppression within the deaf community. And because I'm a politically grounded person who's been doing anti-racism, anti-oppression work for years, and being part of the deaf community in that way, this really brought up for me. And so I really was trying, I didn't know Kelly very well, I mean I've only met her a couple of times. And so I was, you know, I was as nice as I could be, but I was troubled by the interaction. I didn't know what to say. So that's what I said. <laughs> so Susan's response was, ugh, and frustration. And mine was one of horror because I instantly saw what she was saying and I didn't know her very well, so I didn't want her to think I wouldn't agree. Um, because I'm someone who on an ongoing basis as opposed to in a reaction, uh, reactive way have been working on anti-oppression. Um, so I was worried. I was worried what she would think of me. I was worried what other people on the email thread might think of me. And I kind of felt a bit defensive because I'm just a volunteer. I was trying to do something good. Um, but in her article, Annie Gonzalez Milliken says, it's really normal to feel embarrassed or guilty or ashamed when we feel good about acting on our values and then someone gives you the feedback that something that you are proposing is harmful or misguided. Um, some people feel really self-righteous. Some people might completely shut down or just say, you know what, forget it then, let's just not do it. So her main point is that while those reactions are understandable, they are less than helpful. So using this 
spiritual practice of being open. So opening yourselves up to unpleasant feelings and then finding a healthy way to process them. It's important to process those initial feelings privately. Some people might journal, some people might grab a friend, chat about it, gain some perspective. Um, and then a lot of people have to loop back to this because feelings like shame, anger, and fear can keep popping up for you while you process something. Um, but once we identified our feelings, we can let them go. We can move on to wonder. So that's the second uh, principle. So curiosity is amazing for breaking down and decrease uh, those feelings of defensiveness. So I had to wonder and ask myself, what can I learn from this? Why does Susan feel this way? What is it about ASL and deaf culture that I had the privilege of not knowing or thinking about? Um, so no matter where we are in our journey to decolonize our minds, we can always learn more. And it's important to do your own research as opposed to responding and asking someone to educate you. So I googled autism, which is not autism, it's autism, so you know, someone being more um, in touch with, I guess, the hearing community, not as aware of the deaf community. So there's a lot of things on there about the harm or the potential harm about YouTube videos that use ASL signs and encouraging kids to use them as part of music when the ASL signs have not been vetted or the video hasn't been produced by a member of the deaf culture. I also belong to a supportive group called Mothers Beyond Belief. So it's a bunch of atheist moms. And we have um, unpacking groups. So there's unpacking racism, unpacking uh, cis heterosexual privilege, and unpacking ableism. So I got a lot of support from them, and they actually edited and uh, gave me feedback on my email response to Susan. So when we practice wonder, when it's a spiritual practice for us, um, we're also practicing humility and openness to your spirit moving. So this is my response. Really quickly, what I say is I thanked her for calling me out. I apologize sincerely. I let her know that I loved her suggestions and I wanted to implement them, so I invited her to the next RE meeting. And I let her know that I had reflected on what I had written. So I accepted that while my intentions were good, my words and actions were hurtful, and I chose to see Susan's email as a gift and an opportunity. I'm having it again, that experience. <laughs> Like when Kelly responded like that, I, my heart just cracked open. The isolation and the loneliness that we've experienced. No one in my community learned to sign. My son doesn't come to any family gatherings. And when Kelly responded like this, with that depth of ownership and humility, and it's just like, wow. So I responded with, is the next email up? Right, what a thoughtful and self-reflective response. And all the assumptions that we make when we assume we know what someone else is going on and what's happening there. And I didn't know Kelly was on this path. And so that's, like, people don't know the history of deaf people and what they've gone through and the terrible oppression that they've experienced. And Kelly's response just really shifted. And then this is what I responded with, with my email. And then in preparing for today, I did, is the next um, email. So I found out all this stuff. I knew quite a bit of it. But, like, way back about how deaf people were senseless and weren't allowed to participate in 
you know, and then there was a couple of hundred years where deaf people became educated and learned to sign and were writers and poets and teachers. And then in 1880, there was this conference that 163 hearing and one deaf said no more sign. So the next hundred years, deaf people's hands were tied and they were beaten. Many were sexually abused and they were not allowed to sign. They were removed from their hearing parents at the age of four or five and put in the institutions for the deaf all across North America and Europe. And the, the consequences are pretty severe even on this present day community. Um, and yeah, there was class action suits which I had known about because I lived in Belleville for some years. And then the United Nations not till 2001 said that persons with disabilities including sign language and deaf culture. Can you do the next slide? And then it wasn't until 2010 a formal apology was made. And the technology, the reason we added the technology, because everything changed in 2010 when deaf people could watch TV. Because up until then they couldn't watch TV because there was no closed captioning. So seven, eight years ago now, that changed the world for deaf people, right? Technology. They couldn't drive until 1963. They weren't allowed to drive. There was so much oppression. And then it was this odd thing that came up in my research about deaf who communicate via sign language and do not speak are no longer to be considered mentally incapacitated. And although my son's coming through some of his rage and anger that he experiences out in the world, he says he goes out in the world and people think he's to, and treat him like he's mentally retarded because he's profoundly deaf and has used sign language growing up. Not always, not everyone and not all the time, but for deaf people that's quite a huge um, thing. So Kelly's skillful and open-hearted response grounded in the whole ARAO thing was just like for me and then the suggestion to come do I say the RE meeting or do you do that? You do it. You can do it right now. So then she invited me to the RE meeting and I came in and that's when I first heard that there was a willingness to say, let's explore this further. Let's kind of really look into this. And I also heard from Kelly, her, she cried when she got my email. And I was like, holy. And she went off and did all this research and looked at, went and ran this email before she sent it to me, passed a whole group of checking out, is this kind of from a heart place but also still doing my own education around what this is like. So I was so touched by Kelly's openness but also her ARAO inclusivity from that approach. So yeah, so I did cry. Um, <laughs> and I cried because I didn't, I it felt awful thinking that I had hurt somebody. When you hear Susan's story and it's so compelling, when you hear that history, you realize I had the privilege I had of not knowing any of that. And I didn't realize how hurtful my request was. So um, this slide, the spiritual practice of centering and reconnecting to your core values is where I went after I cried because I had to reconnect with, well, why do I think this work is important anyways? It, I can understand when people just want to stop right there and just say, okay, I'm sorry, and then back off. But I thought, no, I'm doing this because I want to learn more and I want to do better. Um, so if you're ever in this process, basically spend some time reminding yourself while you do that work, reconnect with that, and take your ego out of it. Um, and sometimes when you look at your motivations initially, it's very much ego-centric. So you might want people to see that you're a good ally, so you double down. You um, might just want to be right. And you might want people to think that you're really radical. So it takes a little bit to step back from that ego and then reconnect with your deepest values. Um, and then once we've centered on those commitments again, then we can move on to discernment, which is the next slide. 
So basically, you have to figure out what you're going to do now. Um, and when you've received feedback that something that you've done is problematic, um, there's a lot of factors to consider. So your own personal identity, your social status, uh, the various roles you might play in your relationship to others. And then it's important to think about your next steps and how they might impact people, whether they might harm them or help them. Um, Annie Milliken says, this is because there is, or there is no one right answer, and this is because there is no one perfect way to be an activist, or an ally, or dismantle white supremacy, or the patriarchy, etc. So once we've learned about the limitations of a tactic that we were once really excited about, um, then we can make a more informed and intentional choice about whether we do that or don't do that, and respond. And that's the next slide. So that's the final Spiritual practice is actually responding. And if you've done all the other steps first, then your response is probably going to be the most grounded and helpful and mature that you could come up with. And it's important to remember not to ask people who face an oppression that you don't to stop expressing their opinions or to express them differently. So if Susan hadn't written a kind letter, if she had come across as actually kind of upset um, or rude, that's okay. I can't ask her not to feel those things. Or at least it would, I wouldn't let it prevent me from taking the next necessary steps. Um, so Annie encourages people to lean into the spiritual practice of gratitude when responding in writing or in conversation um, when someone offers you feedback. And it can be as simple as, especially when it's in person, thank you, you gave me a lot to think about, and then you can go away and do your work. And so one of the questions that's been coming up for me is, how do I step forward as a skillful, educated ally committed to doing this anti-racism, anti-oppression work in a way that is inclusive and grounded in spirituality. So this experience for me with Kelly and then meeting her amazing daughter Scarlett and she told me oh she learned how to sign. She's 12 years old. Oh she learned how to sign. I'm like yeah okay. So she said she'd really like to sign with you. So I go down and meet her like a month ago and I was like she responds back to me, fine, we have half an hour of conversation with no voice. She taught herself, in my 30 years, I've met one person. Do you know how many people, dozens and dozens and dozens, family, community, have said, oh, I wish I knew how to sign, I wish I could talk to Luke, but I can't, and I don't, I don't have the time, and I, right? Like, I've heard that, I don't know how many times. People just feel like they can't do it, and this amazing Scarlet in six months just took it upon herself to learn how to sign enough to communicate directly to me for half an hour. She's going to run into any deaf person and say she can just do that and it you know and of course she's 12 so her brain might be more fresh than mine but nonetheless she did that and you know so anyway I was really rocked by that she's pretty awesome it's a pleasure to connect with you Scarlett and get to know you in the midst of all that yeah so these, this is our action plan. This is how we're growing together. So we're going to have someone come from the deaf community to speak with us on a Sunday. We're going to have someone work with the children on that song and teach them a bit about deaf culture. We can celebrate that we did all that work and then sharing it with you all. And then we can continue to learn and apply these principles to other situations. And just so that you know, I did contact Katie Covey, who is the person who coordinates the Soul Matters RE package for RE. So we'll probably also develop a disclaimer for other religious educators um, so that they don't run into the same problem or make the same mistake. And I'm going to close with um, words from Annie. 
And she wrote this article, by the way, in response to problematic, well-intentioned things like the safety pin campaign and the pussy hats during that March uh, last year. So her uh, powerful words are, this movement needs us, and we absolutely cannot give up because it's hard or because everything is complex. We absolutely cannot attack those who face oppression because their feelings and experiences make us feel bad. We must instead use these terrible times as an opportunity to become better, better versions of ourselves, the most spiritually mature and grounded people we can possibly be. The world needs us desperately. There is no other option. Thank you. And thank you, Kelly and Susan, for sharing that incredible dialogue and for inspiring all of us to step into this. So for me, one of the greatest teachings about living into a covenantal faith like ours is this. We can only become emancipated from systemic oppressions by doing it together, as was so gracefully illustrated to us today. In the words of an indigenous Australian artist and activist group, which included the academic Lila Watson, quote, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting our time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. End quote. Working together so that the full diversity of human voices and human experience of the different ways that we experience life and engage with life 
inviting all to take a seat at the proverbial table of our shared humanity is the work of repairing divisions, rivalries, and animosities that systemic oppression promotes, that systemic oppression has left for us to clean up. As a Unitarian Universalist who happens to identify as white, as cis female or cis woman, I'm working to be more and more aware of the lenses that I look at the world through. To know when I'm wearing one of those lenses that I haven't identified yet, that I haven't named yet, that I haven't unpacked to the degree that I need to. And I need you in this work with me as much as you need each other in this work. I can't do this alone. None of us can. So when I look through lenses, lenses that might be bound to white supremacy, a lens that might be bound to the patriarchy, the ways I oppress myself and because of my gender, the, the, the lens, when I'm wearing a heteronormative lens, when I look out into the world and I fail to see the full diversity of love. There's so much potential for leadership from within our ministries and our communities for those who identify as white, to welcome others who identify as white, into seeing the necessity of an intercultural competency work. There's a way we can help each other by dialoguing, by doing research, by reading, by asking Mr. Google to help us educate ourselves. For those who find themselves in a, in it, to be heteroromantic, welcome others who are heteroromantic into conversation so you can figure out where that lens is preventing you from seeing things. Or for those who identify as male, talk to others who identify as male and figure out, okay, how is this lens blocking me from seeing the full scope of difference and experience that is human life? <laughs> the author Daniel Hunter wrote a book. Um, you may have heard of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. It's a phenomenal book. She's a great scholar. It's, it's um, heartbreaking. A really hard read, but a beautiful read. Daniel Hunter wrote a follow-up called Building a Movement to End the New Jim Crow, an Organizing Guide. And he offered a framework I'd never seen before. And it actually helped me to unpack one of the ways that I used to avoid anti-oppression work, or A-R-A-O-M-C, anti-racism, anti-oppression, multiculturalism. Also, sometimes called intercultural competencies. How do we build intercultural competency? And he, what he did was he broke out four different types of activists that gave space for every single one of us to be an activist. Every one of us will find in these four categories who we primarily are. And of course, we're all with any personality typing system. You're going to see elements of yourself in all of the categories, right? 
but they'll go in an order. So you'll know which one is your primary and your secondary and where do you challenge yourself to be that maybe is really hard for you and you can pass that to somebody for whom that's their gift, but they need your support in this other area. So let me run through the four types really quickly. There are the helpers. So these are the individuals that are drawn to the work of companioning the oppressed by helping them to find resources, being with them in their daily lives, the, the work of filling the basic needs of survival. Advocates come next. These are the folks who work to find available resources in the system. So these are the lawyers and the social workers and medical professionals and medical advocates helping people to find their way through a system. The third are the organizers. These are the people who see that the system is hurting others and they work to apply pressure to the system to cause change in a culture. You saw me get a little mischievous there. That might be one of mine. And the fourth are the rebels. We need our rebels. They are the people who want radical change and they want it right now. They are protesters. They are engaged in direct action, civil disobedience. They're willing to take big risks, including getting hurt themselves. Think of Bree Newsom climbing a flagpole and tearing down a Confederate flag without safety wires, with the police waiting at the base to arrest her. Okay? Those are the rebels. We have all four of those types of people in this community because we are all activists. If we look at it this way, if we welcome each other as everyone is, I'm gonna speed up, I promise. Our liberation is bound to our interdependence. Theologically, I see Unitarian Universalism and Buddhism as having a lot in common in terms of these ideologies of ethics and justice. Both hold being the best person we can possibly be. Being in relationship with our community, our people, our fellowship. Right here this roof that we gather under every Sunday as high ideals that benefit ourselves and all beings. At the roots of both faith movements, we will, they provide an ethic for individuals to be in the world skillfully and reflection practices to identify when we have fallen into an unskillful behavior or an unskillful way of being. This can be accidental. And a moment of unskillfulness was unpacked for us beautifully this morning. But this will happen to every single one of us. Don't avoid social justice work because you're worried about being unskillful. I promise it will happen. So we can do it together and hold each other through the unpacking. Our faith guides us to be in true relationship with one another while working towards justice and equity. The justice and equity our free faith calls us to promote in the world. So I got pulled into the work 
through my ministry, through my call to be a minister, through Unitarian Universalism, through my Buddhist theological training, through feminism, and the ways that I see that as something to work on. For my, if I got pulled into this because I just straight up have a desire to leave the world a little better than I found it. But I began so far from this. My journey to understanding the moral imperative of anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism work has been beautiful and frequently painful. I came from a family that blended classes. Educated middle class maternally, working class immigrants paternally. On the maternal side, Quakers and Unitarians, long histories of social justice work. On the paternal side, the systemic wounds left by immigration, by class systems, by oppression. My early exposure to social justice and volunteerism came from the maternal side of my family. Obviously, my grandmother was involved in women's rights, in education, in global peacework. And unfortunately, she would frequently and stridently disparage family members who weren't involved in that work with her. This was bullying and highly critical. And this way of interacting with the rest of us is likely why none of us joined her, ever. This way of engaging with social justice work left me feeling unwelcome, it left me feeling alienated, it left me feeling incapable of doing the work. And the world around me continued to challenge and invite me to go deeper, to have my own conversations for my sake and for the sake of my ministry and for the sake of anyone I would ever be called to serve. I began stepping slowly and gingerly, just waiting for somebody to bully me, to stridently tell me that I was doing it wrong. I started showing up for groups like showing up for racial justice or the religious coalition for reproductive choice and, and a whole bunch of other work and groups where I was studying and stepping into my first ministry and soon I was promoting events and actions and occasionally I was attending events despite not really loving huge crowds. Um, shocking, I know. And then a moment came when I simply couldn't go slowly anymore. I dove in head first. I signed up for a class on having a, a course, an online course, and having hard conversations about racism. It was one of the hardest months of my life. I studied for hours every night. I cried for hours every night. And I unpacked a lot. What I learned in that one month will feed my ministry for years. And it broadened out because I walked away from the experience with a clearer view of my own white fragility, yes, that's a real thing, of systemic racism, and of a broader understanding of systemic oppressions. I got woken up so much more deeply because I chose to educate myself about this. From my family of origin, I may have learned a little bit about how I don't want to do it but not that I don't want to do it at all, just how I don't want to do it, right? This um, 
One of the ways I've seen this done really beautifully is it's called a small group social justice ministry and it's a model where we sit in circles and we talk. It focuses on creating space for this faith woven with social justice work. A meeting would look like this. The first half of the meeting would be about UU identity, about spiritual practice, about personal reflections on specific social justice actions and what we learned from it, from our mistakes, what we learned from them. And then the second half of the meeting time ends up being the business agenda. This is the business of that group and what we're going to do. That's just one model. So whether, whether a person is a helper or an advocate or an organizer or a rebel, we are all valuable to this effort. The promises we make, our covenants with each other, are the ground of our ARAOMC work. And because I have faith, because I have love, and because I have a community, I will now go in search of liberation knowing that mine is bound to yours. So may we welcome the helpers who companion those being oppressed in meeting the needs of survival, and may we welcome advocates who work the systems and the networks to aid the marginalized, and may we welcome the organizations who see how systems are hurting people and whose actions change cultures, and may we welcome the rebels who take big risks, and with their bodies and their freedoms, they seek radical change through radical action, and may we always work to discern what is skillful and what is unskillful about all of the ways that we can be in this work together so that we can unlock our potential to do it together as a fellowship of human beings. Hariyom Shanti Shalom. Peace. Blessed be. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday service podcast from the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship. Please feel free to check back each month for additional episodes, and if you're able to contribute financially to this community-supported enterprise, we would deeply appreciate your generosity in any amount.